With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Receiving incoming transmission. Today we explore the world of First Kings with our special guest, Brian Gadawa. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to meet Queen Jezebel? Well, today's your lucky day. Radical Christian. What's up, Radical Christians? Welcome back. It is another blessed day for all of us. We are alive and we have a chance to glorify our Lord. So it's exciting to be back as always. I'm sure you guys are excited too. Today, our guest is Brian Gadawa. Now he is an author extraordinaire. He writes books which are a fictional take on factual biblical stories. So what he does is he basically humanizes these characters that we've learned so much about. And what that does for you is it actually deepens your understanding of the Bible. You develop a connection with these people from these stories that he makes. Now, he tries as much as he can to get the, the, the books that he writes perfectly in tune with the facts in Scripture and through his hours and hours and hours of research. So I highly suggest it. Today, we're talking about his book, Jezebel. But in true radical Christian fashion, we're not just talking about his book, Jezebel. We're talking about the whole world, everything involved in it. Did you know that some ancient Israelites believed that Yahweh had a wife named Asherah? I didn't know that, but today we are, we are going to explore all those things. And, you know, we got our beautiful, fun, crazy slides to look at. So without further ado, Mr. Brian Gadawa. What's up, Radical Christians? I'm here with Brian Gadawa, author extraordinaire. We're going to be talking about his book, Jezebel, today. So, Brian, how are you doing? Very good, man. Thanks for having me on, Drew. Oh, it's my pleasure. So I, I read your Jezebel book. It was amazing. Um, before this, I read the Joshua Valiant book, which was really good as well. And then when I saw this book, I was like, hmm, I know a lot about that that part of the Bible, First Kings, Second Kings, that area. But it was great. So I have nothing else to say besides it was great. So I'd like to talk to you about it today. <laughs> yeah, come on. Certainly you have some questions. Well, look, I'll, yeah. I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll start talking and you you don't have to butt in because uh, once I start, I, it's, I, I, I take a long time, but I'll try to, uh, to, I'll try to make breaks in between. But just sort of to set the scenario for everyone, uh, Jezebel Harley, Queen of Israel is the first in a series called Chronicles of the Watchers. And that series is actually sort of a sequel series to a previous one I wrote called Chronicles of the Nephilim and Chronicles of the Apocalypse. So I've got several series that are all kind of with operating with the, in the same universe, the same sort of um, biblical universe. <clears throat> and that's rooted in the Watchers and the Archangels, but in particular the Watchers. So they're all connected in that sense. And the premise is that in the Bible, it talks about and there's multiple passages like this, and they're not always ex explicit, but it talks about there being watchers over nations or spiritual principalities or powers that are authorities over nations. Now, you read about this in um, Daniel 10, and um, you know it talks about, Daniel has this vision, right? And he's seen this vision, and there, there are these beings, these divine beings called uh, princes. And scholars will explain that they're spiritual princes, not earthly princes. 
And he talks about there being the Prince of Israel, who's Michael, the Archangel. And also talks about the Prince of Persia and the Prince of Greece and how they're battling one another. And so, and they're called the Watchers in, in, other, in other chapters. And so that's where you get some explicit uh, description of them. And the notion is that over the earthly authorities, the biblical writers, as well as other ancient religions, believed that there were spiritual authorities. So you would have an earthly king of Assyria, for example, and over him, there would be a spiritual king of Assyria. And there are other passages in the Bible that, that talk about this. Psalm 82 is another one. And there it defines them as there's a divine council around Yahweh's throne. They're called the heavenly host, they're divine beings, and they're called the sons of God. And if you do a Bible study on this phrase, sons of God, it shows up in multiple places. It's kind of a technical term for these divine beings. And sometimes they're called gods. Like in Psalm 82, it talks about how uh, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Are you saying the Bible is polytheistic, Brian? No, it's monotheist, but the word for gods is Elohim. And our notion of gods is really not that biblical where we tend, when we use the word God we, or gods, we're assuming, well, they're not real because there's only one God, right? But the truth is, is biblically, the word Elohim referred to basically spiritual beings of many different types. And that word Elohim is translated as God. And so it's not saying they're polytheism, but there are different divine beings. So there are angels, for example, there are demons, there are cherubim and seraphim. There are departed spirits like uh, Samuel's spirit that was called up by the witch of Endor, and that's called an Elohim. So Elohim gods, it's like spirit beings, right? And of course, Yahweh is the Elohim of Elohims. He's the God of all gods. But the premise of my series was that the Bible talks about there being a demonic reality behind these Gentile nations called the Watchers and their fallen sons of God. And my premise was, well, what if those gods are, or what if those Watchers, what if, what if the gods of the ancient world were real beings? So, you know, for example, in Canaan, or let's say in, in Babylon, they had Marduk the king of gods. In Assyria, they had Asher, the king of gods. And in Canaan, they had Baal, the storm god. And there was Asherah, the mother goddess, and various other deities. And I thought, well, what if those false gods, Bible says there's demonic reality behind them. What if they were these watchers, these fallen sons of God that came to earth and were masquerading as gods? And the, the other passage that I want to refer to as setting the stage is Deuteronomy 32 verses 8 through 10, and it talks about there that at the Tower of Babel, when God separated the languages, he created the nations, right? And the principle there was, of course, after the flood, mankind was still evil, and they were mankind was unifying in evil to build this tower, and it was a form of self-deification, right? And so God wanted to stop this because it's like human humankind being in the image of God, the potential for evil if we unified was so great that God needed to split us up into separate nations. So nations, you know, represent that that category of separation. But he says that he separated the nations and he allotted those nations to the sons of God, these fallen angelic beings. But it says, but Israel or Jacob Yahweh allotted to himself. So the idea here is that at that time, God allotted these nations, these territories to other 
fallen beings. It's sort of like God saying, okay, mankind, you're going to worship, keep worshiping false gods and not me. I'm going to hand you over to them. You're going to be under their authority and we'll see how you like it. It's kind of like that, right? And, but he said, but, but my allotted uh, nation will be Israel and the territory he's going to have is Canaan which was, of course, until then, God had given it over to the gods, to Baal and these other gods, right? So you've got this, these watchers, these territorial authorities that are spiritual principalities. And that's sort of the, the principle that's going on here because in the Old Testament, you hear these stories about Israel coming in and you know they're supposed to wipe out all the Baal worship and all the you know idol worship, but they don't. And they worship these entities and um, so that's a lot of the storytelling that, that that's going on throughout my series. But I'm also, I'm, so I'm retelling Bible stories, but the Bible gives us hints of, of this spiritual dimension, but it doesn't tell us much. So I'm going in and I'm saying, well, what might this, this spiritual world look like? And so consequently, when I'm telling these stories like Jezebel, I'm retelling the story in Kings of Jezebel and Elijah and Jehu and Ahab and all that. But I'm also incorporating it into it of what might be happening in the principality realm. So what I have is I have these gods, Baal, Asherah, Ashtart, etc., Molech, right? These are the gods of Canaan. I have them as these demonic watchers masquerading as these gods. And so they're trying to sort of take over the land and get people to worship uh, other gods. Meanwhile, the archangels, Michael and Gabriel and Uriel and stuff, those guys are, are protectorates over protective, you know, entities over God's people. And so that's where you get this notion that in the Bible, whenever there's an earthly battle or war, it talks about there being a war in the heavenlies. So that's how I'm depicting this world. So these, these supernatural and natural world intersects and they're connected in some ways, but they also have their separate stories going on. And that's sort of the big, the big story premise of the series Chronicles of the Watchers. Yeah, the, the fact that you show things from the God's point of view, that's probably my favorite part of the books because it not only puts well your whole book puts a face to all these characters like i remember when i went after the book i went to read verses from kings i felt like i could picture the characters now like elisha cool. like i read about naaman later on on my own studies and i was like oh man i, I have a picture of what he's like from the book i also cast um if you go to the website gadawa.com and click on the tab for chronicles of the watchers i cast all my books so i have pictures of that i do research and try to find pictures some people like that some people don't they like the, their own imagination but if you want to see how i envision them i have it on the website because i agree with you when you tell a good story it helps people it makes the bible story come alive and especially if if you've gotten bored with it or if you've gotten so used to it it's hard to see it afresh and that's my goal is to help people see the the bible stories with a fresh set of eyes while maintaining uh fidelity to the bible obviously i add some fictional elements of the supernatural and stuff but but i try to s stay as close to the spirit if not the letter of the stories because i know that you know believers in the bible you know they have that high view and so do i of the scriptures so so that's what i'm doing but so these spiritual entities, another thing that you, th you know, like if you watch movies, you know, they, and they have demonic armies and all that kind of stuff, you know, they tend to show them as very unified, like they're all unified in, in doing evil and fighting good. And I'm like, you know what? I don't necessarily picture it that way. I think that if these demonic beings are created creatures, that means they have individual personalities 
And I'm like, you know what? Yeah, they might be have certain amount of unity in terms of fighting against Yahweh. But if they're created beings with individual personalities, they're going to have their own ambitions, right? And so the way I depict it in the series is kind of like, I call it kind of like the mafia, you know? The mafia does, you know, the mafia controls the territory, but within there, you've got people jockeying for power, betraying one another, trying to rise up in the ranks. And I have all that as well, because that's how I picture the demonic spiritual world is, is Definitely, it's all about power. So they're going to be jo and they're going to be betraying and jockeying for power with each other. So I try to make those stories interesting. So one of the things I do is, the what what kind of stories am I telling? Am I just making them up out of thin air? I'm not actually. There's a lot that I draw from from the pagan mythology, and this isn't syncretism. Like, am I combining the Bible with pagan mythology? What I'm doing is I'm drawing from their stories and I'm incorporating within the biblical story, but I'm subordinating it to the biblical worldview. So consequently, for example, the ancient uh, Canaanite culture, and, and we now have texts that we found in Ugarit, which is in northern Syria in, in, in that land, um, ancient texts are called the, ba the Epic of Baal. And it talks about all these d different mythological elements. And one of those stories is that Baal was the storm god of, of Canaan, right? So he brought the rains that brought the harvest. He was a fertility deity as well, um, it, not, just being, um, not just being a god of power. So there's a story about how Baal was taken captive by Mot, the lord of death. And he was brought and imprisoned in shale, right? And then his sister, Anat, who's a warrior goddess and the goddess of sex as well. She goes down and, and hunts him and finds him and she she frees Baal. She cuts up Mata into little pieces and sows them in, into the land, brings Baal back up, and then Baal brings the rains when he, he comes back up. So that's sort of describing the fertility cycle of winter when there's no more rain and all that kind of stuff. And or I'm sorry, not there's a rainy season, but I mean, there's no crops and stuff. But then when Baal comes back from Hades, they would cry out, Baal, where is Baal? And they would cut themselves as part of the pagan ritual, uh, bleed themselves in order to bring him back from the dead. And then Anat would bring him and then he would bring the, the rains that would bring the crops, right? So that's sort of their fertility cycle. And they incorporated that into their, into their lives. Well, I bring that story into my story and I actually have that happening and I tie it in with the biblical story in this sense. If that's their fertility cycle and the notion was that when it couldn't rain, Baal was in shale. So I actually, if you're familiar with the Elijah story, what's, what's Elijah about? When Elijah goes on Mount Carmel and, uh, well, first of all, when Jezebel becomes queen in Israel, we'll talk about Jezebel in, in a second, but she, of course, is a, a wicked queen and she brings Baal worship into Israel. And of course, Baal's the storm god, right? So one of the first things that happens is Elijah goes in and he says, I declare a drought on this land that it will not rain until I tell, tell you so. And what's the point of that? Well, the point is, Baal was the storm god who brought the rain. And so in a sense, in essence, Elijah is going to say, no, Baal is not the storm god. Yahweh is. And I'm going to show you by stopping the rains and your god won't be able to bring it back. Only Yahweh can bring the rains, right? So that's sort of his, his principle there. So there's a drought for three years and, and, you know, Kings talks about that. And I bring that into the novel as well. But the idea there is that uh, there's a drought and, and Elijah's causing it. And then on Mount Carmel, it wasn't just a, Mount Carmel is where basically at the end of these three years, Elijah goes there in a confrontation with Jezebel's prophets of Baal. 
And the goal was, okay, we're going to put the both build an altar, put a sacrifice. And the God who answers our sacrifice with fire from heaven, he's the God who's the storm God, right? And of course, the Baal guys, they cut themselves and all this. And it's interesting because they're cutting themselves. And that was part of the Baal epic. In the Baal epic, a knot cut herself before she went down into Hades. So you can see how they're, they're mimicking their myths, right? Well, nothing happens. And then when Elijah comes, he prays and calls down fire from heaven. Yahweh is the God of, of the storm God. So the whole point there was the rains were brought after that. It was a contest of who was really the storm God of Canaan. And that's sort of the, the story. And so I integrate that whole thing about Baal's you know, captive and he's trying to get back in time to cause the storms. And I won't tell you what happens because uh, it's kind of an interesting, unique take on it. But you can see how that's how I'm sort of incorporating these these myths, but sub subverting them, submitting them to the biblical worldview. Yeah, you did a really good job with that. Because I remember one point, without giving too much away, there was one point where a certain God, he, it's referenced, hey, you believed a little too much in your own backstory, basically. Yeah, it, yeah. The, these gods have a certain amount of power because they're supernatural, but they're not the living God and they don't have the power they think they have. And so sometimes like bad, like uh criminals or mafiosa, right? They think they're a little bit bigger than they really are, and that causes problems. Absolutely. Um, one of the other elements of that that uh, carries over throughout the whole series, actually, is the archangels. And so it's sort of like the archangels are the ones protecting Israel. But the problem is, is as Israel worships more gods and other deities instead of Yahweh, that gives those other gods more power, right? Because the God you're worshiping is going to have more power over you. So the principle is, this is where Jezebel begins. It's the 9th century Israel, uh, 9th century BC Israel. Uh, it's after Solomon, the temple is in Jerusalem and the kingdom has been divided at war with each other. You've got Judah in the south with Jerusalem as the capital and the temples there. You've got Israel in the north and the capital is in Samaria there. And they're divided and King Ahab is the is the king of, of Israel. But there's a problem. The problem is, is that Damascus or uh, the Arameans in the north, whose capital is Damascus, they are war at war with Israel. And, you know, so they're fighting over e economies and stuff like that. And Israel decides to craft a treaty with Phoenicia on the coast against the Arameans. Why? Because the Tyre and the Phoenicians control the merchant shipping, which basically brought in, you know, riches from all over the world, right? So Tyre was a rich city and, and uh, Phoenicia was rich and cultured, right? And so they controlled the seas and Israel had sort of control of the, the king's highway. And, and that was an economic trade route that connected Syria in the north and Mesopotamia, the Euphrates River, all the way down to Egypt. Everybody used that for their economic trade. Well, Israel controlled that. So now they control the roads and the seas. And you can see how that, you know, that gave them more power as they were battling Aramean. So that's kind of what's going on politically. And in order to cement that treaty, they engage in the traditional form of intermarriage. So Queen Jezebel is actually a princess of Tyre. She marries King Ahab as part of that treaty. And then, but here's the thing. Israel was supposed to only worship Yahweh. But in fact, Israelites were very apostate during this time period. They worshiped the goddess Asherah. In fact, archaeology has shown us that 
uh, most of the common common Israelites had little Asherah statues, and they believed that Yahweh had a consort or a, a wife in Asherah. So they and they had Asherah poles, which Asherah poles are these totem poles that are used as as part of the worship of Asherah, and they had those in the high places all around Israel and Judah, and these were all banned by Yahweh, but the Israelites never got rid of them. They kept worshiping the goddess Asherah, as well as other gods like Molech, right? So, but but they didn't, at this time, they didn't have Baal. And so when Jezebel brought in, she, she came into Israel, she brought Baal worship. And she brought it to such an extent that she built a temple of Baal in Samaria. This is like an atrocity. And that's the thing that actually uh, started the whole Elijah and his ministry because that was such an abomination to God. And so that's the story I'm telling in Jezebel, harlot, queen of Israel. But there's an element of this that, you know, you hear that term harlot queen. And I think most people, when we hear Jezebel, we have this notion, yeah, she's the seductress, the, you know, the whatever, the prostitute or harlot, whatever. But that's a misnomer. Actually, all that language, including my title, Harlot Queen of Israel, is actually not about her being a, a f earthly or physical prostitute or harlot. She was a spiritual harlot. What that means is God always talked about Israel being his wife, metaphorically speaking, right? He was the husband. That, and so whenever Israel turned apostate, the prophets, whether it's Elijah or Jeremiah or Isaiah, they would call her a harlot or an adulteress or a prostitute. All these words are interchangeable, right? So the idea here is that Jezebel was called, and in, in the New Testament in Revelation, she's linked with the sexual immorality and all this, but it's, a met, it's not literal. It's a metaphor for her bringing spiritual adultery into Israel with Baal worship. That's what that's what that's all about. So in my story, you'll read it and you'll start thinking, she looks like a good person. She's not a harlot. Well, it's because she's spiritually a harlot in that sense. And so that kind of comes out in the, in the novel as well. Um, and my character Jezebel is not the evil, wicked witch of the West, you know. I just want to hurt people. She's actually a positive character from her perspective. She sees herself as, hey, I'm coming from a rich, cultured, sophisticated culture like Los Angeles or New York and I'm moving into these boonies with all these hicks backwoods iron age uh you know Israelites you know oh, I gotta bring progress I'm a progressive right I, I've got to bring change hope and change to Israel and so that's she sees herself as bringing advancement and progressive values with Baal and so from her perspective that's how she sees it right and so I, I give her her due, you know, and, and I say, hey, you know, from this is the thing with villains. From their perspective, they are the hero of their story. They're not villains don't see themselves as villains. They see themselves as doing good. And, and that's what Jezebel is. But unfortunately, Baal worship is an abomination to Yahweh and it brings with it child sacrifice. And that's another element that I bring out in the story, and which is in a shocking reality. What was child sacrifice like in the ancient world? I try to bring it uh, based on historical research and archaeology. I try to make it real, which is scary and frightening. It's, you know, I don't go, I don't, it's not too explicit. Um, you know, it's not, I don't think it's R-rated. It's like PG-13, you know. Yeah, you don't glorify it or anything. No, no, but it's definitely real. And there's a lot of sin and evil going on in this world at this time. So it's a very gr gritty, brutal reality. But there is redemption. The redemption is found in Elijah the prophet and, and the archangels and such as they fight this evil. But child sacrifice in the ancient world 
was rooted in appeasing the gods. So for instance, if there was a war or if there was a, some tragedy like a famine, right, or a, a drought, the rich people would sacrifice some of their noble children to appease the gods to stop it. In other words, the rich people gave them, they felt that that was their responsibility to protect and provide for the poor in that way. So it's not the, most of us would think the rich would sacrifice the poor because they never want to give up their own, but that's not true in the ancient world. They did, they did their own children and, and that would appease the gods and you know stop the famine or the drought or what have you. That's what they believed. And so that's going on and, and I try to, like I said, try to capture that reality of what's a world, because in our world we think child sacrifice, that's outrageous. Who would ever believe that? But you know, if you're in their world and they see the gods and they, there's a reality to them of the gods, you know, it's, it makes perfect sense within their paradigm. But if you think about it, this is another, this is a parallel with today's world. We actually do have child sacrifice going on today and it's called abortion. And so there, you'll see those connections uh, as you read the novel that um, much, much of what goes on with a modern day abortion that, you know, uh, sacrificing on the altar of convenience in order to appease <laughs> the gods of happiness and and you know protect themselves in the future they give their own children you, you'll see that as you as you're reading the novel and i think that uh, so pro-lifers will really love this novel as well you even have a resurgence now of the same god mentioned in your book molech and it's it's very fitting for what's going on with abortion now you have molech being set up in the coliseum and your book he's one of the characters in your book yeah, yeah. A lot of them, a lot of the gods make a little cameos and stuff. And Moloch's one of them, and and Milcom and Kimosh and and all those characters. Yeah. So, um, absolutely. So there's a lot of analogies to, in today's world. I think that there's another one where, you know, you see. I think tyrants sort of end up all acting in similar ways. And a female tyrant, what would be her character arc, and what would that look like? And um, I think you'll see a lot of similarities, shall we say, between the politics of, of the ancient world and politics of today with certain other characters in the past. And yeah, without pushing it too far there, that's, uh, you know, you see all like today, everything's becoming extremely polarized, right? And there was a lot of polarization back in that day and, and world. And, and like I said, Jezebel saw herself as a good guy. You know, she's bringing love. Love trumps hate, right? She. I'm bringing hope and change to this world, and and that's how she saw herself. But what did she actually bring? And that's what the story sort of, as it unfolds over time, you see what really ends up happening, and and it's it's powerful. And just like you humanized Jezebel, you made her a, a very believable character. Because when you read the Bible, you do get that that feeling of just this evil character who you can't really relate to. They're just the villain. But you just like you humanized her, you also humanized Elijah and Jehu and their their struggles. And it, it's it's like it's the mirror of what many believers go through today, especially Jehu, how yeah. he was struggling between doing his duty to serve authority and to and to honor his king that Yahweh appointed, but also, hey, this king's doing stuff that I completely don't agree with. Yeah, and absolutely. It was no, a, I, it was a perfect, you know, it, it I related to that character so much because I've been at those times in my life where I was like, man. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about Jehu. He, he was one of the coolest characters. Yeah, he really was. Um, <clears throat> He, uh, yeah, most people would think that, oh, this is a story of uh, Elijah versus Jezebel, right? And of course, they do have those confrontations, but really, Elijah is more like the Obi-Wan Kenobi of the story, uh, because Jehu, if you think about it, and I guess I guess this will be a spoiler, but I mean, if you've read the Bible story, you'll know this anyway, but 
the story is really more about Jehu versus Jezebel because Jehu was the commander of the armies of Ahab. So he's this powerful military guy, and he's ultimately the one who will end up getting rid of Baal worship, killing Jezebel. He's the one who will end up becoming king of Israel and replacing the whole family of Ahab. So in, in that real sense, he's the hero of that story. But you're right. Um, I, I've done this with all my books of Bible heroes. I have a very good classical traditional view of heroes, you know, not anti-heroes. And, but that view of classical heroes is that heroes have, cla- have flaws. They're not perfect people. And it's foolish to depict them perfectly. And sometimes in our minds, including my own, you know, sometimes we have these pictures of them being perfect or holy or like Elijah, certainly, right? Elijah saw fire from heaven. Certainly he was, you know, he was close to God and holy. And it's like, no, he was human because what happened after he called fire down from heaven? He he experienced the power of God in a way that I've never experienced and probably never will, or you or I, or most of us, right? You'd think he would be really courageous and bold with his faith. Right after that happens, he gets a letter from Jezebel that says, woe is me if if you're not dead by tomorrow night like my prophets were dead, like you killed my prophets. And what does Elijah do? He runs. He runs (laughs) away for 40 days and 40 nights, right? So I always, that was always strange to me. Like, how could you do that after experiencing that? But you know what? If you think about it, well, he's just like us. Look at look at how how cowardly we are often with our faith and we get into situations. Well, if we were in his situation, we we might be experiencing the very same thing because it seems like God's display of powers uh, don't seem to really, you know, they're encouraging, but faith is rooted in something so much deeper than that's why than than these spectacular events. That's why Jesus said, you know, if they don't believe in the scriptures, even if someone comes back from the dead, they're not going to believe. So, it's like you know, these Christians and religious people tend to seek for these experiences of God. And I'm like, you know what? It's like you're 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 looking for something that's pretty empty because it, it'll die away quickly. And, you know, what did the what the Israelites do after they were delivered in the Red Sea deliverance? They set up a golden calf. So and that's human nature. You don't think you're any better than them because we probably do the same thing. Right. So so that's my premise. And, and so I actually my character of Elijah, forgive me, I've, I've gone off topic from Jehu. I'll get back to him. But Elijah, to me, is the most relatable because he makes the biggest fall after experiencing the greatest power of God. He's the one who becomes a coward. But there's something to learn from that lesson where he doesn't just run away from Jezebel. He runs to Yahweh because he ends up running to Horeb or Mount Sinai. That's where he meets God and all that. And so the lesson there is it's okay if you have fear and you momentarily may run away from your enemies or whatever, but just make sure you run to God, to Jesus, because that's where you're going to find your power to ultimately vanquish the enemy, right? So that's what I got from Je- uh, from Elijah, but Jehu is very similar. Like you mentioned, the Jehu character is a character that, again, is relevant to today and in my life because I believe in authority and I believe in obeying authority. And, I, you know, and Jehu, imagine Jehu is a, a guy who's kind of like David. Remember, David said King Saul was trying to kill him. But David said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed because he's anointed by God for that position. So I'm not going to do it. So Jehu's in a very similar position. Only his king, Ahab, is incrementally 
walking away from God and implementing more and more idolatrous things. And how do you obey the king when the dis when the obedience to king becomes disobedience to God? And that's the issue Jehu has to struggle with as he's trying to maintain uh, obedience to both. And I think that that's a very real picture of today's world. You know, you know, we have a world torn asunder and and people who are who are defying the authority of our authorities and the government and stuff just because they don't like it. But at what point does it become appropriate to stand against an authority? And and, and that's an issue that, that the story struggles with. And it's not a black and white, and it's not an easy issue. And I try to I try to make that point. Um, it's not just, you know, oh, you, you just don't do it, or you just do this. It's it's complex, and, and I try to make that realistic, right? So, so Jehu has to struggle with that, and ultimately he ends up needing to rely on the prophet of God to get the word of God. So Jehu's actions in the end are ultimately rooted in the word of God, not in his personal feelings. These are the stories that 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 are going on throughout the throughout the novel. Yeah, and that's a good point. That's a good a purpose of why why your books are so valuable, I believe, is because it's easy to read the Bible and just it's very safe for you to read it. And it's very yeah. easy to say, oh, I just would have done this. It's yeah. like, but then when you see it from the story point of view, it's like, oh, you could see his fear. You could see him about to be killed if he does the wrong move. It's not as safe as, as you know, as it is to read it however many thousand years later. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of those other interesting uh, elements is, uh, so when Elijah runs to the Mount, Mount Horeb, there he has this experience. And it's sort of another one of those weird Bible passages that I always had trouble with. And, and like you said, we have the common thing we draw from it. So when he's on the, when he's at Mount Horeb, he has these three spectacular experiences. One is this whirlwind, you know, this glorious whirlwind. Of course, these are very typical theophanies or dramatic physical things that usually tend to describe God's presence, the whirlwind, right? But it says, but Yahweh was not in the whirlwind. Hmm. Then it talks about the this earthquake, massive earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. Then there's this pillar of fire, but God's not in the fire. And, and then it says, but then he heard a still small voice and, and God was in the still small voice. And I think that most most of the time Christians tend to draw, off, yeah, see, you know, God's not always uh, spectacular. You know, you're looking for these big experiences, but God is in that still small voice that you hear in your heart. In other words, it's sort of like, look, listen to your feelings, listen to your heart, and there you'll find God's leading or something like that. And I know a lot of Christians believe this, but I now don't believe that that's what that passage is saying actually at all. And the reason why is because that, that English translation of still small voice is a bad translation. Scholars will tell you um, that it's actually an oxymoron. It's like saying the sound of silence. So it's literally saying it's silence. It's, there's not a whisper or small voice. It's God is in the silence. And I'm not a mystic, okay? But I now appreciate a little bit about what mystics have said about how you find God in his absence. And what does that even mean, you know? And I think the point of that passage brings out this idea that, you know, God is making this point that, you know what, you're looking for these spectacular things, but I am in the silence. When you feel I'm not there, when you feel I'm absent, it's that hunger in us that draws us, where are you, God, crying out, you know, trying to seek him and just feeling empty and alone without him. When you have that experience of feeling, that's where God is. It's that that drawnness to him. Where are you? 
is his presence in that silence. So it's sort of like saying the opposite of what most people say. It's not like, you know, just listen to that still small voice and then eventually you'll have the experience or like, it, it, you know, he'll lead you by your heart or your feelings. Like, no, no, he's, you feel like he's not there. You don't hear anything, but that's where he is because you're longing for him. You're drawing for him. You know, that's the, the another sort of storyline that I that I uh, wrestle with in there because I, you know, we tend to look for the big dramatic experiences of God or, uh, you know, miracles and all that. People tend to look for miracles. But you know what? When we base our faith on that, it, it's a very weak faith, you know? So I have, I have Elijah as his flaw is that he fears man. That's why he runs from Jezebel, right? So he has to go to God to get power, but the power is not in, in the displays of power. It's in the lack of the presence of God, so to speak, at least his lack of feeling it, right? And you have to find God in that absence. It's kind of a oxymoron, right? So Elijah struggles with this fear of man, even though he's a prophet of God, and I can really relate to that. I'm not a prophet of God, but if the prophet of God struggles with fear of man, that helps me at least have a little bit more hope that my I struggle with the fear of man, right, over the fear of God. And so that gives me a little bit of hope and that I can, uh, I can find God's strength even when I don't feel it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's, that's really deep. You know, that's he, he not, not just waiting for the miracles, not just waiting for the big shows. The, the, it's easy to have faith when God shows up right in front of you. It's yeah. like not so easy when it's silent. You know, and uh, years ago, I was with my mom, and we actually uh, prayed for somebody. They they had something wrong with their leg from a car accident. It wasn't broken or anything. It was just some injury. We prayed for her. She ended up losing the pain. God healed her of the pain. And I, I was very specific. Cool. This is Jesus doing this. It's only Jesus' name. And then she was just shocked. She was an unbeliever. And then I find out years later, I'm like, hey, whatever happened to that one person you worked with? And then she's like, oh, nothing. She just she just wrote it off as like, it was just a, a crazy occurrence. Like she was just never talked about it again. Yeah. And I'm like, man, she she full blown felt it, felt pain, be there one minute, gone the next. And then it's just like, she had a miracle. So if you're thinking a miracle is gonna fix all your problems, it's like, it's not, it's really not. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've always kind of thought that way. And which is why, look, I believe in miracles. I believe God does miracles, but I've never believed that we should like be looking for them. And and because, you know, certain just certain Christians are just so focused on on miracles. I want to see miracles. And it's like, you know what? There's so much more depth to life and meaning than than that. And if you think that's where God is, I think you're kind of missing the boat. Sure, God does that, but um, the greater faith is that doesn't have the miracle, but still draws near to him, still seeks him out and finds him in that silence. Absolutely. So the next the next thing I want to get into with you is how, you know, the way that you speak about Jezebel in the book, you could see those the signs of, of feminism in her, in her. And you could see her promoting women, taking Athalia under her wing and kind of like this whole thing of like promoting women. And like, and like, you know, the, the phrase of like the, the man is the head, but the woman's the neck type of thing. Yeah. So she turns the really, head any which way she wants. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. I, I definitely do care. And it, look, this isn't me importing feminism back into the story. Uh, it's like, this is human nature. You know, men and women have the same flaws and the same strengths as they always have throughout all of history. But the difference is in our culture, there's a denial of the difference between men and women. And so there's an attempt to try to, to get rid of that sacred dis, uh, separation that God created between men and women. And, oh, there's no difference between men and women. We're the, we're the same. The only difference is 
In fact, nowadays they claim that even genitals are no difference, right? You know, you can have a female penis and you can have a male <laughs> vagina. It's crazy, right? So this is the result of denial of the differences. And so what I'm doing is not projecting back. What I'm doing is I'm looking back and saying, men and women have always been the same and, and women in that culture and how they might have sought power is no different than what it is today. And of course, back then they were not as egalitarian as we are now, so it was much harder. But the Bible definitely shows that because, it, you know, the, the story of Athalia she was trained by Jezebel and then Athalia ended up being another marriage for an alliance with Judah. So Athalia was basically Ahab's sister. Some people think she was his daughter, but scholarship shows that she was probably his sister, um, a young sister. And so he married Athalia to the upcoming king of Judah so that Israel and Judah would finally overcome their discord, right? And she ended up being bringing all of Jezebel's ideas, so much so that Athaliah ended up building a temple to Baal in Judah. So that's where you see it. Yeah, it just, uh, the, the idea of mentorship is, is big in this story. I show how not only does evil mentor evil, but good guys mentor too. So Elijah is the prophet who's mentoring Elisha to become a prophet. And Elisha's, I have him as a young student and he's he's learning the ropes and he's learning that it's a big responsibility to be a prophet, but you also, you know, it's it's not easy and it's not fun and all this kind of stuff. And, and how do you be, how do you mentor good? Not just how do you mentor evil? And that's sort of the principle there. But yeah, I, I do, but I do think in the end, there's an analogy with today with feminism in that women, grabbing power to oppress men as a sort of vengeance on how they feel they've been treated on their perceived oppression right and it's basically just the cycle of power is just you replace one power with another you replace one oppression with another and they just don't see this they just don't realize what they're doing is they're hypocrites and they're basically doing the same thing they're accusing other people of doing and i think there's a real lesson in that for today so even though i don't you know yeah, so, so I think that we can draw lessons from the ancient world for today. And that's one of the ways in which you communicate truths about today is by embedding them in ancient stories because you're seeing it in a different context. And so you're, you're more open to listening to it than you might if you told a, you know, a contemporary story, for example. So that's how, that's how I approach my storytelling all the time is I see in ancient stories, I see a common, because human nature doesn't change. Technology and science changes, knowledge changes, but human nature doesn't. So there's always going to be, you know, evil will always end up doing the same sort of thing and always try to take power and always try to, you know, oppress others. And, and, and evil will always portray itself as a victim in order to justify violence against what their perceived oppressor is. Why do I say that? Because think about this, this is why I said this earlier, a villain never sees themselves as, as a villain. They always justify their, what they're doing as good. And so one of the ways that which, I think one of the biggest ways today, and it's always been like this, but in today it's, it's, it's also become uh, particularly um, explicit is this notion of victimhood. And victimhood becomes the way that you justify violence. So you, you say, I'm a victim, they've hurt me, they've oppressed me. So I have a right to act in violence against them. And, and so I'm only responding 
in self-defense or whatever, whatever you want to call it, or retribution or justice. They call it social <laughs> justice, right? All these things are rooted in victimhood as a justification for violence. So I, I do bring that sense of victimhood into Jezebel as well because human nature doesn't change and they had the same issues back then that we, that we have now, absolutely. Now, with your books, you you put a ton of research into them. And just like you said, you cast the the characters. You know, I've been to your website several times and you 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 do whole blog posts and articles on the stuff that you write about. And how, what's the research process like? How much do you research putting into it? Is it just research you've done over the years or do you keep going? Yeah, it's a little bit of both because um, this is the stuff that I've loved studying anyway and it's always been obscure weird scholarship stuff uh, it's just who i am I, I don't know why but i love reading weird obscure scholarship but uh my novel writing began like eight nine years ago and that was how i discovered a way to incorporate all this weird stuff that i study that nobody seemed to care about and and i don't blame people because you know they're normal people aren't as interested in theology philosophy scholarship you know it's okay but I do, and and I could, you know, I felt like, is this a waste of time? Uh, but I love it, right? And it, it helps me, and I learn a lot. So over the years, finally, I started writing these novels, and it started incorporating all this stuff that I got into. And it does it, it, it makes it into a story that people can be entertained by. And so I, I call my novels theological novels. So yes, it's been something I've been doing for a long time, but I do do uh, extensive research for each new novel, you know, up, upgrading and stuff. In fact, People have enjoyed the research so much that um, I provide either appendices at the end of my novels where I explain the, the research, or nowadays I'm, I'm, I'm showing more and more of it. And so if you buy the book Jezebel, inside you'll see a link where you can get a free copy of a companion book that I call The Spiritual World of Jezebel and Elijah. And this is like 150, it's a full book and you get a digital ebook free. And it explains all this mythological, theological, biblical, historical research that I put into it. And people are just loving that. People love that stuff. And particularly Christians do because they like having things explained. And plus, if it's weird stuff that's in the Bible, that's in the story that they're not familiar with, to, when they explain it to them, they go, oh, okay, that makes sense. It is in the Bible. I just didn't see it, that kind of a thing. So I like to provide that for people. And um, I just love doing it for myself, though, too. I like organizing. So I do a little bit of research before. And then as I start writing, I, I realize, oh, I got to learn more about this or that. I do research during it. And then I'm, I'm writing it out as I'm writing the story. I'm also writing the research. So I just kind of do a little bit of all of it together. And uh, But by the end, I'll always be releasing not only a novel, but also a companion book of the research. So, and I can't tell you what the next book is because it's still <laughs> a secret, but, uh, but the second book is already out called Chin, Dragon Emperor of China. And uh, that is uh, the premise of the Watchers series is I'm going to take it, start with some of the Bible stories and they're not necessarily in order, but so you don't have to read them in order, you can buy them standalone. But um, I want to expand it out and, and, and take this Watcher concept into other nations, like maybe the North Americas or the, not North, I mean the Americas or, or the British Isles or something like that. I hope to expand, but I'm going to start with some of these Bible stories. And Chin is the first one that takes a step outside of that. And I go to China and I tell the, a true story of the, the a true fiction of the, em, the first emperor of China but there's a lot of things connected with Chinese history that is connected to Genesis, the book of Genesis. But if you think about it, China, ancient China never had connection to the Bible. 
So how did they have some of these things that show up in their culture, such as worshiping a God that's a single God without images? There's only one nation on, on, in history that did that, and that was Israel. Well, it turns out China also worshiped Shangdi, uh, that, that was his Chinese name, as a single God without images. So there's a lot of these commonalities that Chinese Christians will tell you are linked back to the Bible, linked back to the Tower of Babel. When the nations were created, wow. the Chinese, or the people who went out and became China, they brought those, they brought the true stories that they experienced, but everybody twists them and spins them, uh, you know, as they get away from God. There, There's always, shall we say, corruption. But there's a lot, there's less corruption in China's Chinese stories than in, in other pagan stories, which is really fascinating. So that's the, the second book that's already out. Um, it actually it used to be the first novel, but I sort of rebooted the series. So Jezebel's book one, Chin is book two, and that's spelled Q-I-N, that's the, the Chinese name. That's from where we get our name, China. Um, but anyway, I wrote that with Charlie Wen, and he was the, uh, he was the, creator of the visual one of the co-creators of the visual development department at marvel studios so wow. he was a guy who was who was creating a lot of the look of all those those marvel characters that were were used to um in the movies and i noticed on the cover of that one there was a, a greek was it a greek soldier or a greek yeah because um there are there is some evidence that uh the greek empire had interaction with the chinese empire so my story is East meets West, or East eats West, because there's a dragon and there's some fiction and supernatural stuff. So I, you know, it's kind of a, a fictional fantasy type story, but fantasy history maybe I don't know what you'd call it. But um, and so I have a Greek hero as the protagonist. He goes in search of a dragon because they want ultimate power in in in. Uh, Actually, the Seleucids in Mesopotamia were Greek, so he wants to bring back a dragon for his dad uh, to give him absolute power. But when he goes into the land of China, he discovers a world he's not familiar with, and it's magical and both magical and also dangerous. And so, yeah, that's a that's a um, that was a one of my favorite novels that I wrote too. So, wow, yeah, that that one I'm actually looking forward to getting into at some point because I've always wondered how China fits in because I haven't found too much about that, and that's something I've always that's always piqued my interest. Yeah, and the, the companion book I have gives you some of the research too because Chinese Christians will tell you that the Chinese language actually has these reflections of Genesis in it. Why? Because it still is more of a pictorial language than ours. It's become more abstract over the, obviously over the, the millennia, but for a longer time, it was all, most languages start out hieroglyphic. They're pictures rather than abstract letters, right? And if you look at the ancient Chinese pict pictographs, they reflect a lot of Genesis stories, which again, they couldn't have got from the Bible because they were far away from the Bible. So for instance, the word for boat is a picture of a boat with eight people in it. Oh, Noah wow. had eight oh. members in his family. And there's a lot of these things in the word for tower reflects the Tower of Babel. So there's a lot of these really cool things in the language that uh, Chinese scholars will tell you this, you know, and it's a, it's becoming more known, fa very fascinating. So before we, before we wrap it up here, I want to know what's the, what was the most fun part of this last book, the Jezebel book, or most shocking or mm. the, the fun moment for you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, okay. I got to tell you, the fun moment was writing the epilogue. 
So the story ends with Jezebel's death, but it really doesn't end there. And it goes on a little bit with Athalia. And writing that was so fun and exciting because that I have it. It's like a big battle confrontation with the archangels and, and all this. But it's it's based on what happened, you know, historically. But it ended up. I just for some reason I just I loved writing it more than anything. And then when I go back and reread it and edit it to try to you know before I published it, I was crying. I was feeling all all the stuff in the movie. Like when the hero rises up, you're like, yeah. I was I was experiencing all those motions in the epilogue like I haven't with any other chapter. Uh, more so than than any other chapter, and I don't know why, but I just I loved it, and so it made like well, it's one of those things where it's like you'll read this book and it's going to be fascinating, but then you're going to get a major surprise with a really cool sort of epilogue tag on at the end that will make it uh, even more interesting and fascinating. So yeah, that was the most exciting thing for me, um, and surprise because I didn't know that it was going to be so cool, you know? So oh, yeah, so movie like. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it, exactly. That's exactly how I describe it. It was action packed. And it was like, I remember reading it. It was late at night. And, I, you know, I'm ending the book. I'm like, cool. That, that was really, really good. Yeah. And then, and then it's oh, just like, boom, boom, boom. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, whoa. Exactly. And that exactly. was, that was one of the coolest parts as well. Yeah. I think Jehu and then for me personally, Jehu and then the, yeah. the God's point of view. And then that epilogue was just like, boom. Cause it had, it just without, I can't spoil it, but it was, it was yeah, like, yeah. It was exciting. It was really exciting. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, I I wrote Jehu. I related a lot to as well as Elijah. I just um, I drew a lot from them. But you know what? There's I'll I'll, I'll end with this. You know, um, if you're going to tell a good story, you've got to be empathetic to the villain because the truth is, is there's the villain is in all of us, and the same evil that's in them are is in us. And so, if you write a good villain, you're going to just look into yourself. So I find a lot of myself in the villain, in Jezebel, in Ahab, and I find the same cowardice, the same evil tendencies. It's just a question of am I going to feed those or not? But my point is, is when I write villains, it's an honest look at myself because I'm finding where do I connect with the evil in them and how can I then, you know, not be like that, so, <laughs> obviously. But, you know, you learn as much from writing villains as you do heroes. And that definitely shows throughout this book. So Thanks. thank you for coming on. Thank you. Oh, keep... where can they get it? Yes, Did we where talk can they about get that yet? it? No, no, yeah, where can they get it? <laughs> I'm exclusively on Amazon. My okay. books are all in in ebook, paperback, and audiobook. All my books. You go to Amazon, it's got everything you really need. But if you want to learn more, you've already mentioned this. If you want to like go into in depth and stuff, I tried to make my website gadawa.com be full of free stuff and information and cool art and free articles. If you want to go deeper and find out more about all these series, go to Godawa.com. But if you want to look into, you know, possibly buying one of them, all the series are on Amazon exclusively. And they're all standalone too, aren't they? Um, it's hard to say. I, in a way, uh, I would say Chronicles of the Nephilim is not so much standalone. I think okay. it's it's better if you read it like you read J joshua but you got to read caleb because it's the sequel to joshua okay. it's kind of like joshua ends in the middle of the story dude and i like i like caleb vigilant but anyway um but it technically like what you did if there's a character bible character that you really like i always oh enoch primordial oh that's interesting i'll read that absolutely you can read each book standalone if you want but it's just that there is a continuity through all of them uh that you'll get and you'll appreciate even more. But start with anyone you want just to see if you like the writing and, and then it might inspire you to go back and start from the beginning. Cool. Well, thank you for coming on. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for having me, Drew.
Well, that was a blast, wasn't it? It sure was. What's awesome is to see someone with an energetic passion about what they do, like Brian Gadawa. I love it. It's infectious. And I feel like people are more inclined to hear somebody out when they see their clear passion on the subject. So it was an honor having Brian on. His books are great. And we hopefully will have him on for a future broadcast, which we already have the idea planned, but can't let you know just yet. So stay tuned. Now, for our paid content this week, we're going to talk about a couple other projects that we're going to be doing on this channel, two in particular, so you can get a head start. And that's it for this week. I love you guys. Remember, today is a blessed day that you are alive. If you have any issues with pride, unforgiveness, any of that, just deal with it today. You got time now. You don't know what you'll have tomorrow. So, guys, I'll see you next week. Stay rad. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.